Take your Bibles and open them up to the Old Testament. We're going to the book of Judges today, Judges 15. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 20 as we continue our Animal Cracker series with a foxtail tale. A foxtail tale is where we're going to be this morning. We are in a series called Animal Crackers, and we are taking this look at how God used moments in Scripture that involved animals somehow to teach us some truth about Him and about us and what we need to do and how we need to live. And we've built that idea, and we've called it Animal Crackers, with the, eye, the understanding that Animal Crackers, the Barnum Animal Crackers as we know them, they're made by Nabisco, um, were originally decorations for Christmas trees. That's why they have a string on them. They were made, and when they first came out, they were designed to be taken and hung on the limb of a Christmas tree. They sold for a nickel a box, and they decorated the tree and made it festive. And then when you got hungry, you could tell the kid, go get something off the tree and eat it. And the kid would go do it. And it was good. wasn't good for them, but it was still good. And, um, and they were able to do that. And I think that these passages we're looking at, if we take an honest look at them, somehow decorate our life just a bit and allow us to see some things about God in the midst of what seems like unusual, strange, sometimes even bizarre and crazy passages. Uh, and we learn a great deal. And so, so far along the way, uh, we have been able to do that. And we'll continue that uh, once again this morning as we've looked at she-bears coming out of the woods and what that had to do with what God was trying to do. We, we've looked at a talking donkey so far that had nothing to do with Mr. Ed. Um, and today, we're going to see how God used some foxes um, but not in a way that you would like foxes to be used, but that's another story altogether, uh, and we're going to drop in that in a minute. Um, some of you are fans of Jeff Foxworthy, and, uh, and he had a show on a few years ago, Are You Smart in a Fifth Grader? And in that, he was illustrating some things and sharing some things about how they were designing the show. And so he, what he did by doing that was he kind of resurrected or recreated a, a, a series of jokes or short jokes that were designed to get you to think. And so I'm going to do that this morning with you and make a point with it. And so, Patrick, you're, you're, you're a grad. I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Um, there are 500 bricks on a plane. One falls off. How many are left? That is a graduate right there. 499 is the correct answer. That's perfect. Scott. What are the three steps to putting an elephant in a refrigerator? Mm-hmm. Push them, and then close the door. Perfect. Open the door, put the elephant in, close the door. Well done. Good job. Were, were you sweating? I am. A little bit? I thought you were. I thought you were getting nervous. All right. All right. All right. We have a professional educator here. Tia, you're up. Ah, oh, see, you weren't looking at me. But I, I have a wireless mic on. I can find you. Um, what are the four steps to putting a giraffe in a refrigerator? A noble attempt. If I only could be as smart as that. I know, I know. That's, that's such a lofty goal. Very, very close and a good try. Uh, the correct answer would actually be open the refrigerator, take the elephant out. <laughs> Put the giraffe in, close the door, okay? All right, uh, shift gears a little bit. The Lion King is having a birthday party. 
All the animals attend but one. What animal doesn't show up and why? George, help me out with this one. Yes, the Lion King is having a birthday party. All the animals attend but one. Which animal is not there and why? Yes. <laughs> David, can you help him? Yes, the giraffe. He's in the refrigerator. The giraffe. <laughs> the giraffe is not there because Tia put it in the refrigerator just a second ago. All right, so you see, you got the idea. See, you can see the progression going, okay? Now, let's talk about Sally. Sally needs to cross an alligator-infested river. There's no bridge, and the only way that she can get across is by swimming. But she swims across and makes it safe to the other side. Why? Matt, help me out. Why is Sally safe? Why did Sally survive her swim in the alligator-infested river? Again, a noble try. She was fasting out. But simple. All the alligators were at the birthday party. <laughs> and so Sally gets out of the water. Okay? She's now out of the water. She climbs up on shore. She survives the alligator-infested river, and she dies anyway. Why? Ian. Sure. Sally is dead. Why did she die? She stopped breathing. No, that's a good answer, though, but it doesn't count. Here's why Sally died. She got hit in the head with a brick. we come a long way to come back to where we started. But there is in our lives a need sometimes to take a close look at things and keep connecting the dots. For Jeff Foxworthy, he used it as a reasoning kind of thing. But it was designed to help us kind of remember that you need to keep going back and connect the dots so you don't take things out of context and remember what the story is about. And sometimes you have to do that in Scripture. And so, although we've been looking at stories about animals and things like that, today we go, and we're going to do a deep dive for a couple minutes, and it's going to take us a few minutes to kind of move through this passage. But we're going to look at what is a very intriguing, interesting, somewhat troubling, and then possibly a life-changing story about Samson. Now, you guys are familiar with Samson. Samson is the guy in the Bible that got a haircut, got his eyes poked out, died. Horrible. That's why you ought not to get haircuts. Um, but, the, uh, but, the, uh, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, Samson is an intriguing character. God uses him as a judge. If you know the story, or maybe even saw the movie. It was out not long ago in the theaters. Um, Samson is one of those unlikely heroes in Scripture, yet mentioned as a hero in Scripture. Uh, Samson uh, has a lot of things that go on in his world. And you go, what in the world? Why? This guy's such a bonehead. And you read that and you think, yeah, he, he should have been smarter than that. And he should have been. Uh, but yet God does an amazing thing, amazing work in his life. And so we're going to jump into the middle of his story, if you will, in Judges chapter 15. Now keep your Bibles open. We're going to roll through those passages uh, or those verses in just a couple of minutes. Some of you in the room who are Julia Roberts' friends will remember that she had a film that came out called The Runaway Bride. Um, in it, she was uh, a bride who had this reputation of leaving a long trail of grimacing grooms standing alone at the altar. It was a comedy 
um, uh, fun. Um, and in Judges 14, which we're not reading, but we find Samson um, kind of being a runaway groom. What has happened is he has become infatuated with this gorgeous young Philistine girl, and he's insisted upon marrying her. But during the wedding feast, his bride-to-be manipulates him to revealing an answer to this, this riddle that he has created that he thinks is really funny that sometimes I don't get the humor of. And then she humiliates, humiliates him by giving the answer to his groomsmen. And he is so mad, so angry that this has gone south. And you can go back and read the story for yourself. He leaves her at the altar. And he spits and he sputters and he stomps his way all the way back to his daddy's house. And he has a pout. Now, that's, that's Samson. Hero of the faith. And that's Judges 14. Samson's gone. They're not married. Um, The girl's father decides to save her from an embarrassing situation. And so he gives her, the father gives her to one of Samson's groomsmen, the best man to be his wife. What an amazing story. And that's what we're not looking at today. Okay, that's not the story we're looking at today. Our story picks up. Um, with verse 1 of chapter 15. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. Um, Because by the time we get to this part, Samson's rage has calmed down just a little bit. Um, He has um, ratcheted down uh, what he was feeling before. Now he's thinking about the girl who he left behind. Um, Spring harvest has come, uh, which is the spring wheat wheat harvest, actually, if you look at the the, uh, calendar. And so um, it's just started, and so it is that time of year. Uh, Samson may be suffering from spring fever, I'm not sure. But he swallows his pride, and he decides he's going to go back to Timnah and claim his bride. And on his way back to his bri- his, the bride's father's house, he grabs a young goat to give as a gift, a sort of a peace offering. Look at verse 1. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. And he said, I'm going to my wife's room. But the father would not let him go in. Now, let's stop for a moment. Maybe he was thinking if he gave her a goat, he could say, okay, honey, no hard feelings. We'll be back together now. Maybe, although that sounds like a bad Taylor Swift song. But it's one of those things where if you, if, if you want to make amends with someone, it might be best to leave the goat on the farm and, and, and try flowers or chocolates or something different than that. A goat really isn't a romantic gift uh, to give to a loved one. Verse 2, I was so sure you hated her, he said, this is the father, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. So, when Samson shows up, he gets the shock of his life. The girl's father says, well, uh, uh, I gave her to your best man. I thought you hated her. What was I supposed to do? I mean, the father's, uh, again, boneheaded choice, I suppose, to give her to the best man. But, again, the logic is sound from the standpoint, I, Samson, we thought you were out, dude. I mean, we, we, you checked out of this thing. This is, um, we thought you were, you were gone and weren't coming back. But the man sees Samson's eyes start to blaze. Uh, Samson is not happy. And so then the guy kind of recovers real quick. He goes, well, you know, you've seen my younger daughter. Um, she's more attractive than the one you're going to marry. Why don't you just take her instead? Don't think that's necessarily a model for good parenting either, if, you be, uh, if you're honest about the passage. But he's attempting to 
make a situation right. Um, and Samson would have none of it. Because this was not the daughter who was the one that was right in his eyes. And so instead of trying to navigate or understand the situation, he shifts the blame to the Philistines. It's got to be their fault. When in doubt, blame the Philistines. And he decides that he's going to take revenge on them, and he's morally justified to do harm to them because they have hurt him. And so he, he's now within his rights to react. Verse 3 through 5, Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. And he burned up the shocks and standing grain and together with the vineyards and the olive groves. So Samson comes up with this clever weapon of mass destruction to obliterate a national food supply. He caught 300 foxes, held them up, and tied their tails together in knots so they couldn't get apart. Then came back in and put a torch on each pair of those foxes' tails, and then let them loose in the fields to torch it, to burn it. Well, what did the foxes do when he put them down? They went scurrying around and running, and they lit everything around them on fire. Um, and they wiped out the Philistines' grain fields, olive groves, the entire harvest. Verse 6. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told, Samson the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. Now, you've got to remember, don't lose track of the story here. They weren't married. Okay? But again, when it comes time to putting blame on someone, never underestimate the power of a rolling bus. People will throw you under the bus and let it roll over you if there's any possibility. Uh, I did it to Leroy earlier today. Uh, they, they will, they, 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 if there's any way that, that, that it can be done, they'll figure out a way to do it. So the Philistines are now looking to make somebody pay for what's done. And so they go up and they go after the father. See, Samson had thought he had outfoxed the Philistines once and for all. But once they found out that Samson was the arsonist that was responsible, they captured Samson's former fiancée and her father and burned them to death. They killed them. They burned them. Executed them. They believed it was their right to do so because Samson had done what he had done to them. Verse 7 and 8. Samson said to them, Since you acted like this, I swear I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. The vicious cycle of violence continues. Samson vows revenge on every man who's responsible for burning his bride and her father-in-law. And so he tracks them down, finds each person, beats them to a bloody pulp with his bare hands, and then runs for a hideout in the Judean hillside. And that's how the first eight verses of this bizarre story start unfolding. Now, there is plenty of stuff in there to stop, talk about, think about, and try to unravel and come up with some kind of sense of what in the world is going on. But we'll come back and review in a minute. But let's keep going. Verse 9 and 10. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. And the people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? 
We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. So keep up. The Philistines now discover that some of their men had been slaughtered by Samson. And so they gathered an army and they marched against the tribe of Judah and they go to the town of Lehi. And when the men of Judah inquire, when the men of Judah inquired why the Philistines were there, they said, they're seeking revenge against Samson. We are after Samson. That's why we're here. Verse 11 and 12. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? Why have you done this to us? And he said, I merely did to them what they did to me. And they said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Now, don't miss the start of this passage. 3,000 men went down to get Samson. I mean, this guy's lit fields on fire. He's already hunted down all of the Philistines that he thought were responsible for starting, uh, for, for lighting his, his fiancée on fire. He's now hiding out in a cave. They know where he is. The Philistines have come and threatened Judah, so they're going to go down, and they're going to take 3,000 troops down. They're going to put them together, a posse. And they're going to see if Samson will come with them because their intent is to turn Samson over to the Philistines. I don't even know who was in charge that thought this was a good plan. You ever have a moment where you just go, who planned this? I'm thinking if I'm part of the 3,000, I'm working my way to the back of the crowd. Because when they get there, if Samson starts wailing on these guys, I want to be the first one out going the other direction, right? And so, rather than calling Samson to lead them in fighting for their independence. They act like complete cowards. And they go to his hideout. They remind him that the Philistines need to be treated with respect and kindness. And Samson has now jeopardized their safety and well-being. They tell him, we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. That's the plan. Now, Samson is one of them. Can you imagine the mindset of an army sacrificing one of their comrades to placate the enemy? So much for no man left behind. This is what their plan is. Samson says, well, swear to me you won't kill me yourselves. And, and that puzzles me because why all of a sudden is Samson worried about these guys? But, verse 13, agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him up with two new ropes and led him from the rock. And as they approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. So Samson says, just uh, don't kill me. And they said, okay, we'll tie you up and we'll take you, uh, we'll take you to them. They bound his hands, they marched him over. And as they get there, the Philistines come out and they start whooping and hollering because they're anticipating their revenge. This is their moment. The mighty Samson has been brought to them and handed over, believe it or not, by his own people and given over to him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and gives him supernatural strength. Verse 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. 
Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. He is a poet. <laughs> and when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. So in other words, he gets there, he snaps the ropes like wet noodles, grabbed a jawbone from a de decaying donkey carcass. And by the way, along his life, if you go back to a number of moments, he has taken a Nazarite vow of being a priest, a judge. And by reaching down and taking this jawbone out of a decaying carcass of a donkey, he actually is um, compromising his vow again. But he's doing it because you know, he needs a weapon. And so he uses it to form of brass knuckles, strikes down a thousand Philistines, surveys the carnage, throws the bloodstained weapon into the sand, um, probably stacked up the Philistines in a hefty pile of thousands, and decides he wants to make up a little song to commemorate the event, to immortalize his achievement. And then they renamed the location Ramath Lehi, which is a catchy Hebrew phrase that translates into Jawbone Hill. <laughs> so Samson finds his thrill on Jawbone Hill. <laughs> Verse 18. <laughs> because he was thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength was returned he was revived, and so there that spring was called in Hakor, and is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistine. So somehow, as Samson finishes his work of killing these guys and pushing the bodies aside, he sat down in the sand to rest his weary body, and that's where he realized and had this moment where he goes, whew, killing Philistines with a jawbone is hard work making up songs about it. Boy, that's tough. I'm exhausted. And he's parched. He has sung so much that his throat is parched. And there's no water in sight. He's incredibly thirsty. He's out in the middle of the desert, faced with the possibility of perishing in the desert. For the first time, he cries out to God for help. He prayed for water lest he die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines. Now all of a sudden, he's afraid of them. Now, when you read that at first glance, you might be tempted to applaud Samson for such a, a pious prayer, finally acknowledging the need for God in his life, God's presence in his life. But when you look under the surface, you can't help but notice the prayer is a little bit self-serving. Notice he doesn't address God by his name. He just says, you. Uh, very flippant, not holy God, not most gracious Father, not giver of all things not giver of my strength, you have left me to die here. Forgetting completely that God just showed up, helped him bust ropes, gave him the strength to kill a thousand. He's already whipped up on the Philistines prior to this. I mean, it's not like God hasn't shown up frequently in his life, but he's now got him down to an impersonal pronoun, you. Don't ever come before God and start by addressing him that way. God's not a hey you. He's much more than that. Um, but there's also in the prayer no gratitude for God's provision of a lethal weapon. There's no thankfulness to God for God's spirit endowing him and empowering him. 
to give him supernatural strength to overcome his enemy, uh, which Samson is doing, um, it seems like, on a regular basis. There's no recognition of God's grace or goodness at all in his life. He's not interested in giving God glory. He's interested in protecting his glory and not getting handed over to the Philistines. And you hear that prayer and you think, yuck, the last thing you would ever expect is that God would answer that kind of prayer. But God steps in, and sure enough, as Samson lay sulking in the sand, a seam in a rock miraculously splits open, and a stream of water begins gushing forth with clean water. It refreshes him, it spares his life, and then we find out that Samson is going to rule or judge Israel for 20 more years. That is a story. And that is an Old Testament story that I think sometimes we read or we look at it, we know that it's out there, we don't think about the ramifications of what's going on, uh, we don't know what's happening there, and we think to ourselves when you're done, well, what does it mean? You know, what can I learn from this? How does this apply to my life? And so we're going to take just a couple of minutes and give you a couple of things, uh, and they're in your worship life, that apply to your life that I think are worth remembering about the story that you can learn from, because this is a crazy animal story. A lot of foxes died, we think, I mean... We don't have the part about that he stopped them, blew out the torch, and untied them. So I'm going to assume that they didn't make it. And this is one of those moments where then all of a sudden a donkey comes into play again, but good thing it was dead so he could grab the jawbone. And God has once again allowed animals to be a part of a saga that he is trying to tell where we will understand a little bit about how he works, what he thinks, and what it means to us. And so... The first thing I want you to see, and this is, I broke it down into some tales that I think emerge. Um, it's a tale of responsibility. A tale of responsibility. In our lives, you need and I need to learn to take responsibility for our actions. Remember back at the beginning of the story? After leaving his bride at the altar, Samson arrogantly expects to return and pick up right where he left off. And he gets there, and he finds out that his fiancée has been given to another man. But he, he never takes ownership of the fact that he got mad, had a hissy fit, and stomped off till spring. And then decided to come back. Instead, he threw down the card that many people have thrown down, and they throw it down repeatedly in their life. He played the victim card. I'm a victim. I've been done wrong. You know anybody that does that today? It's epidemic in the culture that we live in. Uh, I know people, you know people that go through life complaining about everything. They're unwilling to admit that they are the primary creators of their own misery. It's a lot easier to say, well, it's somebody else's fault. It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. But it's hard to say, you know, I'm part of the problem. It's hard to step up and take responsibility for your actions. It's hard to step up and take responsibility for what's going on in the world around you and connect the dots and see how it all fits together. And so the question before the house is, as we look at this and we figure out some of the lessons that we can take out of this, is you ask yourself the question, how do you spend your life? Do you spend your life spinning your wheels, convinced that it's always someone else's fault? Or do you take responsibility for what you do, what you're doing, how you're living. Is it someone else's fault? Or do you own those things that you can own? 
See, for Samson, he gets in trouble and his struggles begin at the moment that he decides that he doesn't want to take responsibility. It just doesn't happen. The second tale that emerges out of this is this is a tale of endless revenge. You, you pick it up in the passage, right? This is an endless cycle of revenge. As the men of Judah sought initially to mediate between Samson and the Philistines, the two parties sounded like children. Think about what the verses we read. When the men asked the Philistines why they were prepared to attack, they answered and they said, they only meant to do to Samson as he did to us. In verse 10, that's their excuse. We're only going to do to him as he did to us. And then they go and they talk to Samson. And when they did Samson, they say, what are you thinking? Why did you attack them? He said, I merely did to them what they did to me. That's in verse 11. So in verse 10, you've got blame going this way. In verse 11, you've got blame going back the other way. And what they're doing is, each one is saying, the other deserves it. The other deserves what's coming their way. What I'm giving to them, they deserve. I'm just doing what they did. I'm just doing the same thing you did to me. Whatever you did to me, I'm just going to do back to you. I'm just going to push a little bit harder. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And it's a vicious, painful game, but it's an endless cycle of revenge. The bottom line for all of them is they all believed that they were entitled to extract payment for something that had been done. It's a tale of endless revenge. Mosaic law allows an eye for an eye, a repayment for a wrong, for a situation such as Samson faced. But you need to understand that in the Mosaic law, that eye for an eye statement or that eye for an eye rule was intended to encourage restraint, not to justify excessive retaliation. And in Samson's case, it seems as if retribution and retaliation were Samson's priorities. The law was designed to teach that while restitution is part of it, it had nothing to do with retribution. And so for Samson, he had gotten it all out of wax. He should have known better. And he was intent on retaliating. And so he was saying, uh, it's an eye for an eye. I'll take your eye, but I'll raise you. I want two of yours. And I'm going to take your neighbor's eyes too. I want all the eyes I can grab. And Samson ramps up the game. And then the whole fox stunt. I don't know if you look at that story like I do. And I, as I was praying through it and thinking about it and, and working on it, and even studying and getting ready for this, it dawns on me that this whole fox stunt, it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of deliberation. It takes a lot of time. It takes a herd of foxes. I mean, there's a lot that's going on there. But think about what the Bible tells us what happens. He traps 300 foxes. We don't know how. We do know that he was incredibly strong, so I'm sure there could be something, something crazy going on here. But, you know, he doesn't just go out and put out an ad in the newspaper. All foxes apply, we're going to have a party. You know, that's not how it works. He has to trap these animals. He traps these 300 foxes, and then he has to not only catch them, but he has to pair them up and tie 300 tails to, together. I don't even know how long that would take. Because I just got to imagine that a fox doesn't like to be grabbed by the tail. So when you got these foxes in the air, and they start thrashing about, then you got to put your finger here. And, and, you, and, you, and you tie the fox's tail together. Not once, not twice, not three times, 
150 times. That's a lot of time to think about what you're doing. And every time he lifted two foxes together and started tying their tails together, he could have thought to himself, you know what, I'm done. I can forgive and move on. This is too much. It's too strong. 300 times, he had an opportunity to stop. 150 times, he had the opportunity to say, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm going to quit. Oh, and then we got to tie a torch to their tails. That's another 150 moments of contemplation, of thinking through, of planning what it is that you want to do. But he kept pushing on ahead. 450 times plus that he could have backed out of this thing. He could have quieted his anger. He could have let go of his pride. He could have recognized his own shortcomings and said enough is enough. But he keeps peddling the revenge cycle. And he won't get off of it. And he keeps going. Samson was mad that they took his bride. So he burned the fields. They burned the girl and her father. He pummeled them. He ran. He marched against Judah. He crushed him with a jawbone. He just couldn't get enough. Because he had been done wrong. I don't want to see a show of hands, but I got a gnawing feeling that everybody in this room has been done wrong. I mean, I don't know your story. I don't know the details of it, but I just got to admit, if we had the time to start talking or passing a microphone around and you felt open enough to share, most of you in the room can give a moment in your life where somebody did you wrong. Happens all the time. B.J. Thomas sang about it. Hey, why don't you play? Another somebody done somebody wrong song. I mean, people understand that. We can all get on page, but we can, we can all commiserate with each other about that. I was done wrong. I mean, it could be anything. It could be anywhere. It could be any place. But all of us have been done wrong. We can get on page with that. Did you react by going out and trapping foxes, tying them, light, lighting, lighting them on fire, and sending them into the place that they need to be sent into? That's a little extreme. But it doesn't mean that you didn't want revenge. And it didn't mean that maybe, just maybe, while you didn't go catch a fox, you did do something. But in our lives, there is a constant that people may not treat you like you want to be treated, but how you react to them is where you stand before God and how you react matters. And there is a life lesson in this that you and I have to be careful in our lives not to get caught up in an endless cycle of revenge. And we play this kind of nonsense out in our heads. Okay, they did this to me, so I'm going to do this. And when I do this, they're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and they're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to say this. And when I say this, they're going to go, <gasps> Am I the only one that's ever had that kind of conversation in my head? I, I understand we all have a desire for it, but as we follow God, what begins to happen is we begin to remember that God balances the books. Our job is to be obedient. Our God is to reflect His light and His love into the world. And as we do that, we begin to learn that there are some moments that we can let go and we can quit tying the foxtails together. For some of you in your life, you need to quit tying the foxes together. As you think about your existence and where you are and where you are in your journey, quit tying them together. You be obedient. You trust God. Let Him do what He needs to do. 
He didn't die to make you God. He died to give you an abundant life. Don't squander that abundant life by always constantly seeking revenge. You'll never be satisfied. As Samson shows us, it's never enough. And it doesn't honor God. It's also a tale, and you don't have this one, a tale of cowards. Now, each week we've been giving you uh, online and on the app extra bonus cookie material. Um, That's this week's. I think that there's a lot that we could say about the men of Judah here and their reaction, and I think it's nothing short of just being cowardly. This people of God who knew better had an opportunity to step up and do something different, and what they decided to do instead was take the path of least resistance for themselves, and they offered up Samson, their warrior, so they wouldn't be inconvenienced and bothered. They're cowards. And so in the extra cookie this week, we talk about how important it is in our lives that we don't become cowards. And we don't take that road that's so easy. And that we can't be afraid to take a stand for what's right and a stand for God in a world that always wants us to compromise our commitment to Christ and take the coward's way out. And so you can go and you can listen online later. It's already on the, it's on the website. It's on the app. Um, You go find that. But the third tale I want to give you is a tale to remember. Because this is the one that I like a lot about this story, even though I don't completely understand it. Because when you read the story, you're amazed, once again, by God's incredible grace. Because Samson is one of the most overconfident, selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, egotistical, proud, arrogant, conceited, big-headed people in all Scripture. That's a fairly conservative statement about his life. He was flippant with his vows that he made to God. He was flippant about the promises he made to God. He was flippant about keeping those. He did his best to ignore God's plan for his life. And the only person he seems to care about is himself. And every moment becomes about him. We all know people that do that. It all funnels back to what they think, what they feel, what they want, what they did. It's selfish and it's sinful. sinful. And when you do that, you're pulling the Samson. So you can call it that. When you get selfish and self-centered and it becomes all about you, you're thinking like Samson. The problem is that you don't usually get supernatural strength. And so, don't pull a Samson. But be amazed by what God does. Because God never gives up on Samson. See, if I'm going to give up on anybody in Scripture, it's Samson. It was like they had the NFL draft and they blew the choice. This is what I got. This was the best I could get. This is the guy who has no ability to make a good choice to save his life. This is my champion. And yet God continues to use him and he works with him. And even in the end, and we know when we fast forward through Samson's story, because Samson's not done screwing up yet. But God steps in, intervenes, and uses him in a mighty way. And Samson is remembered as a hero. And you say, how can that be? Well, think about who Samson's primary target is, the Philistines. The sworn enemies of God. Those that oppose God and God's people. And so don't underestimate God's ability to take care of his people. And don't underestimate the ability of God 
to move in the midst of tough circumstances and tough people because when you oppose God, he doesn't just wink, wink, nudge, nudge and say it's okay. See, our culture would convince us that God's not real and God isn't a factor and it doesn't matter. And sometimes we get lulled into believing that and we just think, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, God is God. And we talked about this this morning. We started a series called God is Love. But God also is a lot of other things. And God has an amazing ability to balance the books and do what needs to be done. And so God even answers Samson's selfish prayers. Have you ever prayed selfishly and God answered it? Were you surprised and did you thank him for it? You ever have a prayer that you pray and you go, Whew, God, you answered that. I didn't think you would answer that one. <laughs> I mean, there are moments in, when God gives us what we want, even when our motives for asking aren't the best, aren't the purest. And Samson has now done his deed. He's tired. He's thirsty. He doesn't give God credit, but he prays, and God says, all right, I'll give you water out of a rock. Because God was really saying, I need you for another 20 years. I'm keeping you in the game. You've got more to do. I want you to know that whoever you are, if you're here today, God has kept you in the game. And so you need to understand that this also is a tale of God's amazing grace. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be in the game. We talked about how much grace is so much bigger than we thought. God will do what he needs to do, and our lives have been enhanced by God's grace. A bountiful Michigan family added another boy to their clan recently. Um, and everyone is talking in the community that they are a part of, about the boy's unusual middle name. The parents are Kateri and Jay um, Schwent. And on April 14th, they welcomed a son into the world, and they named him Finley Sheboygan Schwent. Sheboygan is his middle name. He is their 14th child born on the 14th of April, and all of the children are boys. Jay, as he spoke to the local press, said, we are officially done making babies. Some speculated that they kept having children because they always thought they might have a daughter. But God kept surprising them and blessing them with more boys. When asked about that, and asked about the rumors that they just kept having kids because they wanted a girl, Jay said, oh, that's silly. We're just thrilled that God has blessed us. But then he told the newspaper a Native American fable where a chief was the father of many boys. And he had decided that they would only have one more child, but he was convinced that that last child would be a girl. And when the last child was born, it was another boy. And they named that child Sheboygan. Not short for the name of a city, but short for the name of a phrase, she's a boy again. <laughs> and that's what he told the press. And the press said, what does that mean? And he just goes, I'll leave it to you to think about. Sheboygan is the boy's name. And it reminded him 
It reminds the reporter that, you know what? Sometimes you just can't paint God into a corner and you just can't anticipate how he's going to move and what he's going to do. And I want you to know that's his grace and his goodness in your world. Because he always knows what's best. He always knows what needs to be done. And it matters. So, so what do you do with the story? What is the now what? What is the takeaway? Well, you're already in a, in a series. You're doing something wild for God. You're praying. You're saying, God, you know, give me an opportunity to do something wild for you. And it's just be used. And, and as we're talking about it, and I know some of you guys are writing in your journal and getting to the end of the day and saying, okay, God, this is how you use me today. And it surprised me. Because I want you to write it. I want you to remember it. It's important for you. But here's how you kind of set yourself up to do that. And that's where we begin seeing it in this story. And we'll see it again next week, by the way. If you want God to use you and to do it with a little less resistance, let's put it that way, go back and learn the lessons. Be responsible. Take responsibility for your life. Stop believing the lie that you're entitled. Instead, simply worry about being obedient and rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. And remember that anything that happens is not anything to do with you but because of the grace of God. If you can be responsible, quit living entitled, and be amazed by His grace, when you pray that prayer, God, do something wild with me. Use me. You'll discover that He wants to use you in ways that you never thought were possible. And then you can begin to connect the dots of how it all fits together and how it works. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Let's pray. Lord, it's a crazy story. We read it and we shake our heads and we just think, wow. What kind of story, what kind of lessons, what is it you're trying to do in the midst of this? And yet we begin to see and connect the dots in Scripture and we recognize that there's so much more going on than we first realize. And there's lessons for us to learn as well. Lord, there are folks in this room who, when they hear stories like this, it's very easy to disconnect them and not realize how much it is that you love us and what your grace does. And there are some people who are here today, who are watching, who are listening, who will download this later. And, and Lord, they are desperately in need of you. They've never made the decision to believe, trust, and follow you. They've never had that moment where they've asked and invited you to be a part of their life. They've never had that salvation experience that we all need to have that puts us on the road of abundant living. Not just, for etern- not just for heaven one day, but for the here and now. And so what I pray for anyone who's never made that choice, for anyone who's never made that decision, that before they would walk out the door this morning, they would simply check that box that's on the worship flyer that says, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. I want to accept him as Savior. That they would fire us an email uh, through the websites that are listed wherever they're watching at. And they would simply say, I want to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. And give us an opportunity to open up that door and have that conversation with them and help them to understand what they're doing. The Lord, there's others in this room who have made that choice, but just like it happens so often in our lives, it's easy to get distracted and it's easy to miss and connect the dots of what you're doing. And so Lord, I pray that this would be a day that we would be reminded of some things that we need to do in our own lives so that we can be used in ways that go beyond our expectations and imagination. And so Lord, I pray for each person in this room that the lessons of this morning wouldn't be lost, 
that they'd be embraced and we would discover a fullness to life that only comes from you. So prayer, our hope, in Jesus' name, amen.